Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. Today's guest is Nick Bear. Nick Bear has a degree in nutrition, is a former Army veteran, and he even went to Ranger School. He's an entrepreneur, popular YouTube and Instagram personality, and founder of Bear Performance Nutrition. Nick has shown us time and again that strength and endurance can coexist and likely at a much higher level for both of those efforts than most of us expect. I was really fortunate to actually build ahead north of Austin by a bit and meet Nick at his facility where he records his podcasts, trains, and runs his business. And I mean, I've been to some pretty cool podcast studios between Joe Rogan's setup and Mark Bell's setup at the Super Training Gym in Sacramento. And Nick's is right up there with every, with all of those guys. He's got a really cool setup. Uh, it's fun to meet a lot of the team members they have there and then ultimately sit down in his studio and dive in a bit to what makes Nick tick. Uh, so Nick has tackled a variety of fitness challenges that vary widely. Rather than aiming to perfect a specific discipline, Nick has continuously poured himself into a goal and upon completion of that changes directions, oftentimes in a very polarizing manner. This has included both endurance and strength related feats. Nick has targeted a sub five minute mile breaking sub 250 for a marathon on more than one occasion, completed a full Ironman and completed two very different 100 mile courses, which were the Leadville 100 and the Rocky Raccoon 100. He has done both push-up and pull-up challenges, deadlifted over 700 pounds, competed in powerlifting and bodybuilding competitions. Nick is fresh off a 248 marathon in Nashville and has yet again switched directions and is now bulking up nearly 40 pounds to what I believe he said was about 220 pounds is what he's targeting before revealing uh, the next challenge after this, this one that he's currently working on. I find people like Nick interesting. We spoke a bit about this on the episode, but I really do enjoy seeing what appears to be a bit of a resurgence of like the multi-sport approach or people uh, really diving into a variety of different fitness challenging versus just kind of solely developing one very specific skill set. And Nick has definitely been a leader in this approach. Uh, after coaching Nick to his 19 hour Rocky Raccoon 100 earlier this year, I'm excited to see what he has in store when it comes to his future fitness challenges. Before we get rolling with Nick, uh, I just want to share a few updates with you. If you are interested in submitting any questions or topics for some of my solo episodes, you can certainly do that. And I am currently collecting some of those right now for future episodes. Feel free to shoot me a note at hpopodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on one of my social media channels, whether that be Instagram at Zach Bitter, Twitter at ZBitter, or on Facebook at Z Bitter Endurance. And I will add it to the list of possible uh, topics and questions for future shows. Uh, right now, I just recently released the first of what will probably be three or four of those type of episodes. Uh, that would have been episode 317, where we went over a few different topics that a lot of them had to do with kind of like 
either getting into ultra marathons, beginner ultra marathon running, or kind of advancing from one distance to the next within ultra marathon running. One thing I'm trying to do with the topics and the question episodes is try to kind of gather the questions and pair them with ones that kind of make sense. So it doesn't feel like the episode's too all over the place or too sporadic. Uh, the next one I have uh, coming up is currently up on the show Patreon page where I go over a few more of the questions that we have uh, for you there. So if you're interested in getting early release episodes and ad free audio versions of the show, the show Patreon page is where you can do that. I usually finish recording a show edit it, throw it up on Patreon as quickly as I can. And then it comes out anywhere between two to four weeks after that to all the other platforms. So if you're interested in getting them as soon as they're recorded, that's a great spot. If you're interested in getting right into the show versus the intro and the ads, then that's another option on the show Patreon page. If you want to do that, head over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO, and you can link to the show Patreon page from there, as well as access all the other episode links and details other support options are there as well. And uh, that would be the, the main the main hosting page for, for this podcast. Uh, if you want to support the show, but do it non-monetarily, liking, sharing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast platform is a great way to do that. That helps me grow the listener base and continue to record more episodes. Also, if you're looking for a little bit of extra support with your training, I have pre-made plans, one-on-one coaching, consultation and email collaboration options available at zackbetter.com. From there, you can also subscribe to my newsletter as well, if you would like, uh, and generally stay up to date with what I'm up to over there. Uh, finally, uh, the other way you can support the show is if one of the show sponsors has a product that you think would be useful for you, you can let them know that you heard of them through the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Today's episode sponsors and all the show sponsors are located at zackbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. This episode's sponsors include my friends at Ultimate Direction and their hydration accessories. They have a variety of different packs, vests, belts, handhelds, and apparel that can be useful in helping you kind of get yourself sorted for whatever effort you're going to do, whether you're running or hiking. And LMNT their electrolyte supplement yeah we had bone marrow oysters porterhouse steak and it was like to die for (laughs) to die for that's awesome yeah yeah what'd you say the place was called jay carvers jay carvers okay yeah i highly recommend the bone marrow it came out with these massive i mean you you do keto so Mm -hmm. you obviously not eat the bread that came along (laughs) but it's like this massive piece of toast like garlic toast and Uh just put you ever eat bone marrow yeah, uh-huh. Oh, just like scrape the bone marrow on top. Onto the top. Like, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Might have to have some bread for the experience it's, on that it's, one. It's the experience. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Nick, thanks for coming on the show. Zach, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, no, this is exciting for me. I think uh, I just love what you do. You have like what I would call like the the childhood experience from a sports standpoint, which is you don't just play basketball every day, all day long. You play basketball part of the school year and then the season turns and then you're playing baseball or then you're doing track and field and then you're doing this, that, and the other thing. And uh, you, I think as adults, oftentimes we kind of put ourselves into a box at a certain point. Like, oh, well, this is my activity and I'm just going to like fine tune it or kind of coast through it, whatever it happens to be. And you limit yourself with that. But you not only do multiple different kind of 
sports, but also a lot of different variants within them. And I think that's like an exciting kind of way to go about stuff. Actually, I haven't heard it described that way yet in terms of like the the high school athlete. Mm-hmm. And it's so true. Like I'll go through these seasons of training or races or what I'm training for. And then I kind of pivot and, and do the next. Like the last three years we went through and Ironmans, ultras, marathons, just finished up my last marathon end of May mm-hmm. in Buffalo. And now I'm doing this build series. I'm, I'm bulky. I want to put on size and strength. I'm still running through it, but you know, I finished that marathon at 187 pounds. Uh-huh. Now I'm at 210 pounds. <laughs> so I am like the high school, I'm still living like the high school athlete days. Yeah. Yeah. Have you found like when you do that where, cause I mean, I know, and we'll talk about this to some of you, you've done a couple hundred milers, you've done marathons, you've done like mile, like mile PR chases and things like that. Do you find that like when you do get down to your lighter end for some of those longer endurance events and then decide to kind of flip the switch all to all together to the other side that you're able to put that muscle back on a lot quicker since you kind of sort of had it in the past? Yeah, I think muscle memory is, it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. So like clear example, I finished this last marathon prep and I restricted and limited a lot of strength training through that prep because I knew in order to run, I wanted to run a sub 250 marathon. Mm-hmm. I knew I wasn't doing that at 210 pounds yeah. <laughs> and lifting six days a week. But once I kind of flipped the switch and reduced running volume, and increased strength training volume and calories, it was almost like newbie gains again. Mm-hmm. Like anyone who has just first started lifting for the first time, whether in high school or college or whenever, you get these newbie gains where you're putting this size and strength on and it eventually plateaus and you're making these very micro gains over a longer period of time. After this last marathon, that first two months, I felt like I was 18 years old lifting weights again. It was it was <laughs> Just amazing. Just out, out of control. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. I want to look a little bit on the other end, like when you're cutting down, because most people who are in experience where they're like, okay, I'm 210 pounds, I need to get down to 180 to run this marathon. They're not talking about 30 pounds of mostly muscle. And you know, when you're 210, I mean, I'm sure you're losing a little bit of fat along with the muscle, but you're losing a lot of muscle to get down to that. Is that like, what's that experience like? Does that feel like, is that more difficult? Cause your body's probably maybe a little resistant to that at first, or does it just sort of like say, Hey, this is the new activity. Um, this extra like bicep muscle here <laughs> needs to go. And there we go. We have it. We're going to metabolize it. Or how does that kind of feel? I mean, from a, I think there's two different ways to describe it. There's the physical and the mental. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for a lot of people, you know, when you first start lifting weights, you want to, look bigger, you want to feel stronger. Part of it is for performance, but another part of it, at least from my perspective, it's for uh, aesthetics, for Mm -hmm. physique. So for a lot of people, they have the issue mentally losing that muscle because I spent so much time trying to build this, I don't want to lose it. But for me, it's, well, there's a specific, and I used to struggle with that, but if there's a specific goal that I'm training for, I'm going to change my training, my body composition, and my diet to achieve that goal. And I knew, well, if I want to run this certain time on this marathon, yes, I, I know I need to lose weight. And some of that weight will be body fat, but a lot of that weight will have to be muscle too. So that's when I had to like stop lifting mm-hmm. or restrict and, and limit strength training in order to get to that certain weight. Um, so like from a mental and physical perspective it was difficult like for me 187 pounds for most people they're probably like that's still not that light but for me that is like 
uncomfortably light mm-hmm. because when I was you know first getting the fitness, it was all strength and bodybuilding training, and then I got into endurance training. At my peak of like strength training, before even starting to run seriously, I was two hundred thirty pounds. So to get down to one eighty seven, I felt like I was emaciated. Mm-hmm. And as soon as that race was over, like getting back to 200 pounds, 205 pounds, even 210 pounds, that was easy. My body wants to sit right here. Mm-hmm. Now to get to 220, 225 pounds again, that will then again be challenging, difficult. difficult to eat that much food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like, yeah, so your body's kind of comfortable at that low 200 mark. So when you start, start pushing much past that either direction, you're going to have to consciously fight, fight from one side or the other, whether it's like constantly being hungry maybe or feeling like your appetite's never quite hit or always feeling full and maybe bloated a little bit when you're yeah like right now i'm trying to i'm like 210 211 pounds in the morning and over the next couple months i want to get to 220 again uh before before we diet down and we'll document this whole process but i've realized i've hit this plateau in in gaining weight so now i'm having to track my calories and macronutrients again to ensure I'm eating enough. Because what I found with a lot of people, whether they want to lose weight or gain weight, if you're just guessing, estimating, oh yeah, I think I'm eating this many calories. I've heard so many people like they're trying to gain weight. Mm-hmm. I'm like, how many calories are you eating? Like 5,000 calories a day. Yeah. No, you're not. <laughs> it's like 3,500. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, let's track it. Let's put it in a, a calculator. Let's see. Same thing goes for people that want to lose weight. How many calories are you eating? 2,000 calories a day. No, you're actually eating 4,000 and we can kind of make some pretty easy changes with food choices to get you to either lose weight or gain weight. Um, but yeah, for me to gain, to get to 220 plus, I'm going to have to eat a lot. I'm eating 4,000 calories a day right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. I know when, because uh, like my lifestyle, although I'm focusing on one sport, changes enough from an energy demand standpoint where like if I'm in off season, you know, even if I'm like, I mean, I'm usually semi-active still in an off season, just not kind of structured training from running. So I'm like maybe burning like 2,500 calories a day or something like that. But then I hit peak training for a hundred mile and I'm doubling that easy some days. And yeah, I kind of, it's kind of the same way. I don't like tracking calories. I think it's kind of annoying to do it, but I realize there are like values in making sure you hit the right numbers. So a lot of times I try to get intuitive with it where I track for a little while. Then I say, okay, now I kind of know like what makes up um, this total. And if I'm at home cooking most of the time, I can usually control that pretty easily. Uh, but then like I'll go and I'll put in a big training block and then you realize, why did I feel flat today? And then you quick run the numbers again of what you're doing. Like the last few days, like, Oh, I guess I'm probably eating, you know, five, 600 calories less than I should be. And I need to up that up. And then you get out the peanut butter jar and the olive oil jar and start mixing. <laughs> this. Yeah. I go, I go towards, uh, you know, cause I consume a lot of carbohydrates, uh-huh. honey. Like if, oh, I, yeah. if I have mm-hmm. trouble, I just down honey. Um, I've been intuitive intuitively eating for the last four, three, four years. This is the first time I'm actually tracking again, mm-hmm. but it's to gain. Yeah. You know, and it's, uh, I just want to make sure I'm hitting certain numbers every single day. And it's not a dirty block by any means. It's very deliberate, strategic and, and intentional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like you have like a real laser focus when you decide to do whatever it is you're doing. And then once that decision's made, where people would maybe struggle with like, oh, I'm giving up this like, you know, 30 pounds of muscle or I'm giving up this, you know, this ability to go out and just, you know, click off like mid to low six minute mile pace for however long you kind of just are able to like 
put that in a different box, let it sit there and then kind of open up the new one and look towards it. And when, uh, when I was wrote you a coaching plan for, uh, Rocky raccoon last year, uh, I write, I've wrote well over a thousand individualized, like one-on-one coaching plans where it's, I'm taking the person kind of their goal race, their lifestyle, where the training is at and kind of fine tuning it more than I would like a ready-made plan. And then depending on the person, it will depend on how much like we'll change that along the way of all those plans that I've written, you're the only one where I didn't adjust a single workout in the entire buildup. So like, I, you know, I'm not saying that's what people's goal should necessarily be, but, uh, cause a lot of times things happen and you need to change a plan or a workout goes better or worse. So you just, people just aren't as in tune into where they're at. And then, you know, as a coach, you kind of have to learn where they're at as they're learning. You kind of had your schedule set up and, uh, knew like, this is my, I think you were pretty busy at the time. So I think you might've had a, a baby on the way or maybe yeah. just had it at the baby, time. Baby on the way. Baby on the way. So you, I remember you saying like, I wake up at this time and I know I have this block of two or maybe three hours at most where you get your workout in and that window's open for that two to three hours. And once it closes, it's on to the next thing. And then that, that window's not opening into the next day. So you kind of just go into everything and like, this is my opportunity. And if I don't take it, I'm going to lose it. And that's one less brick I'm laying towards the progress I'm trying to make is kind of how I perceived it from my end. Is that kind of what your mindset's like in a lot of the different fitness challenges you do? Easily. Like I, I go into uh, any fitness challenge with a plan and I know going into it, I'm going to be consistent. You know, we were just filming for, uh, we're calling it the hybrid build series right now. And the way I was describing this hybrid build series is, you know, for the people that follow me, they just saw us complete this marathon training block for Buffalo Marathon. I ran a 248 marathon there. Mm-hmm. And I obsessed on this goal. I was very intentional, deliberate, thoughtful, consistent throughout that entire prep. And I'm applying that same thing to this hybrid build now where different goal, I'm trying to gain weight, I'm trying to get mm-hmm. bigger and stronger, but very strategic, very intentional with everything I'm doing. And, uh, in terms of like sticking to a plan, it's funny during this last marathon prep, my coach was Jeff Cunningham for my marathon and he would send over my workouts for the week. And one of those workouts came across and there was a typo in the pace that I was supposed to do. And I looked at that morning, I was like, man, this looks a lot faster than I'm used to. But I didn't even ask Jeff. I was like, screw it. It's on the plan. I'm going to do it. (laughs) And I did it. And then I posted my splits and Josh, our CFO, he also works with Jeff. He texted me. He was like, dude, we had the same workout today and you definitely weren't supposed to run that. And I went back through and I, you know, it was the wrong time that was written down. But if it's on there, I'm going to do it. It's like the scene from the office where uh, he has the directions and it's telling him to drive into the lake and he drives into the lake. Yeah. Like if you tell me the plan, I'm going to stick to the plan. Yeah. Do you think that's a military background that kind of gets that mindset or were you always like that? Uh, I think the military definitely inspired a lot of that. Uh It's like, here's a task condition standard timeline. This is what you have to do. This is the, the conditions you have to do it. This is how it needs to be done. You have to hit this time. If someone lays down a plan for me, I'm going to, I'm going to look at him and say, this is the plan. I'm not going to complain about it. I'm not going to say, I'm a little tired today. I'm going to peel this back. Or, hey, it's there. I got to stick to it. If I want to hit this goal and I want to obsess on it, I got to hit it. Yeah, that actually reminded me. I had a, a relative who uh, was, in, was in the military and uh, Marines. And he, uh, he, he told me this story. And I'm sure it's probably exaggerated or maybe completely false. But he said, like, 
when he was in, in training at one point, he was talking to someone and they were telling a story about how they had this group of guys who were all injured. They all had like these leg injuries and uh, they were trying to figure out what happened. And they went and asked this, the one, the one guy that they, that they knew how he got hurt because he had fallen into a pit. And they're like, so you fell into a pit, hurt your leg. We understand how that happens. But what about these other seven, eight guys? He's like, well, we're Marines. If one goes in, we all go in. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> so I, I, I would believe it. Yeah, same mindset. Same mindset of just like, okay, this is this is the objective or this is where we're going or he's down there, we're going down there kind of a mentality. And it's it works well, I think, for um, when you have like a schedule like yourself it, where you, you have like exact times you need to be doing something. And then it's always changing too because, I mean, you've grown a lot uh, since you started uh, your business and things. And I think like just trying to keep doing what you're, what you know, got you here as well as dealing with the growth has to be pretty precise. And, uh, it's interesting to follow for sure. Yeah. It's one of the things that Jordan Utter, he's a VPN's media director. He was like employee number five at VPN. He started in 2019. And one thing he said to me that I'll never forget, he was like, Nick, you're the most consistent person I know. Mm -hmm. And I say that humbly because I'm by no means the smartest. I'm by no means the most fit. I'm by no means the most athletic. Like I'm not super talented in many things, but I am very consistent. And that has taken 10 years to get to this point. Mm -hmm. But because I've been so consistent for a long period of time, I'm now starting to see the return of the effort I put forth a decade ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's probably an interesting, the consistency is an interesting piece. And I'm guessing that's part of, what you'll answer this to because I'm curious with all the different stuff you've done from the widening wide range of stuff. Are there, was there ever a point where you're just like, Oh, this is the blueprint that I need to follow to some degree. Obviously you add specificity to the event you're doing. Um, but is there like a blueprint you have in your head where like, this is kind of how I go about my, a challenge like this, regardless of whether it's trying to run a sub five minute mile or uh, like a two forty eight marathon or the Leadville hundred mile or whatever you happen to be kind of targeting? Well, there's been like two different ways I've done things. When I transitioned into endurance, I didn't know what I was getting into. And in the beginning, I tried to, to learn myself and teach myself. And I really realized very quickly, I couldn't apply the same thing that I learned from strength training and bodybuilding to endurance. Mm -hmm. It just didn't, there wasn't this correlation between the two. And I was going out and running too hard. I was running too much. I was getting injured. I was getting hurt. And that's when I started hiring coaches. You know, I worked with you for my, my ultra. I've worked with Jeff Cunningham for um, my marathons. And then Natasha with NVDM coaching for my triathlons. And I've learned so much through them. So I've allowed these experts and coaches to come in and lay out this blueprint for me that I can just look at in the morning and go execute. That's one thing that... I think has been to my advantage is I learned all about backwards planning in the military, very common approach to planning your day, mm -hmm. a week, a month, a training block where it's okay. This last marathon, for example, I want to run a sub two fifty marathon. That is the end goal. Let's take a, a full audit and accountability of where we're at today. So we have this many weeks to get from point A to point B. Now we need to put a plan in place to hit certain achievements or paces or workouts in that timeline that will tell us, can we run a sub 250 marathon or not? So taking where you're at, taking where you want to be and then backwards planning in order to establish and, and build a plan in there. That's what's 
the beauty of working with coaches and experts, but I've also applied that same concept to building a business, building teams, laying out campaigns and launches and marketing strategies is, okay, where are we at today? Where do we want to be or what do we want to launch or complete? How much time do we have in between? Now let's lay out a plan based off of backwards planning. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I think that, I mean, that, that resonates with me. That's how I plan all my training stuff. And it's like, I'm always looking for like, well, what's the big goal, which is usually the race at the end. And then it's like, I I also understand like if I'm planning for a race at six months out, the excitement of that goal likely isn't going to keep me motivated the way it does when I first decide to do it throughout that entire six months. So then it's like, well, what do I need to do to get to that goal? And then you start scaffolding stuff together and then you have little goals in there along the way that you can kind of use to gauge progress, get excited about and kind of reinvigorate the whole like, you know, you know setting setting goals and breaking them kind of in a little smaller nature. And I find that that gets uh, really exciting or keeps it really exciting, I should say. And if, if that's no longer exciting, that's a sign to me that I need to do something a little bit different. And for, for me, that's maybe going from a flat runnable hundred to a more like trail-based one. Mm-hmm. Whereas for you, it's like, you're kind of taking that whole other step further, which is like, well, I'm going to run a hundred miles. Now I'm going to, you know, going on a marathon. Now I'm doing strength building stuff. So you probably keep that excitement with the relative newness every time you switch, I would imagine. Yeah. It's like this last marathon prep we did. There's, it was a long prep. And if I would have kept thinking about that marathon Mm -hmm. months away from when I first started, like it's really hard to, to think of that one race every single morning when you're out and you run but we had these, um, these key workouts along the way. There's like an 18 mile workout, a 20, a 22 mile workout. And these workouts had certain marathon pace splits that I had to hit for certain sets throughout these workouts. So I would take every workout, you know, at a time where I'd start the prep and it's okay. What's the first big workout we have coming up? It's this 18 miler. I would treat that 18 miler like it was race day. Mm-hmm. And then once that 18 miler was over, what's next? Now we have a 20 mile workout. I'm treating that, that 20 mile workout like it's race day. Same thing for the big 22 mile workout. And that's why I kind of switch from one training goal to the next is I could have finished that Buffalo, New York marathon, taken some time to recover a few weeks and jumped into another marathon training block. But for me, it's like, but why? Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I got a lot out of that last marathon block I learned what I wanted. I'm not going to be like this elite marathon runner, especially when I want to sit over 200 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, what else can I learn through fitness? And when I set these new goals and I go after them and, you know, I'm learning along the way, but I'm also documenting and sharing the process and helping people reach their goals as well. It is uh, unlocking these different parts of fitness and performance and health to me that I, I wouldn't have discovered through just reading. I'm a firm believer that like, I'm going to learn things through actually doing mm-hmm. and implementation and trying rather than the, the theory and study of. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. I love it. Uh, how much of that do you carry into the race day itself? I think one thing that I learned probably later than I'd like in racing was like, there's this like mindset that I think kind of occurs during like say short intervals where like let's say I'm doing 10 two minute intervals or something like that. And I get to three and there's that inevitable, Oh my gosh, seven more. I don't think I can do seven more. Maybe I should cut it down to eight. And you just like know in the back of your head, I say this every time, of course I'm going to get to 10. And then by the time you get to eight, you're like, Oh yeah, I could do probably four more if I needed to. 
and you laugh at yourself back at interval three thinking that way. And I started to realize after a while, like that's the same mentality you need on event day where, um, you know, maybe I'm at mile 30 of a hundred miler and that might feel like there's no way I'm doing 70 more miles at this pace. It's ridiculous. And then you slow down and end up kind of compromising your A goal to some degree. Whereas you sort of just need to let it set in and be a little more patient and treat it the same way instead of trying to wrap your head around that entire thing. Uh, so how, like how far out are you looking at any training plan? Are you basically just like waiting to the night before kind of saying, okay, this is what today's setup is and that's what I'm going to do. Or are you looking a couple of weeks out in advance? How are you typically kind of breaking down how much you're allowing into your head that can potentially just crowd out other or distract maybe? Mine's typically a week in advance. Mm -hmm. So I'll look at you know seven days in advance and just focus on those seven days. But I, I, I am aware and consciously know what's the next week look mm -hmm. like. Because at the same time, like if, if it was black and white and all I had to do is wake up, eat, train, mm -hmm. then I'd probably only look one, two, three days in advance. But when there's other things going on in life, like business and travel and family and events and you, know, you got weddings and all these things going on in life, those affect your training and your training also affects those things. So I like to be a week, two weeks out in advance of, of being aware of what's coming up so that I can adjust or manipulate life events or mm -hmm. training to facilitate the best of both worlds. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be a human to some degree still too, because there's other people involved, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which is funny to think about. Uh, yeah. So how much like, cause now you have like, how many employees are at BPN now? Is it just under 40? Oh really? Wow. So, okay. So how much of, uh, how much of your employees are like super into it to the degree where they're like, Oh, Nick's moving on to this new challenge. I'm joining along. Is that common or is that very common? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. We always say that when people start working at BPN, if they weren't a runner before, they slowly become, become a runner. <laughs> and I think it's this, uh, it's just this mindset and camaraderie and culture that we've, we've built here where, you know, we, we by no means say, Hey, if you start a BPN, you better sign up for a race. You better go do a marathon, half marathon, ultra, you know, go do Leadville. By no means do we do that. But I think people come in, they see what it does for us physically and mentally, where it transforms people. You build these, these levels of confidence you didn't have before. You get these wins. You want to be ambitious and tackle a new objective or, or goal. So a lot of people in the BPN team have signed up for half marathons, full marathons. I mean, at Rocky, I was doing the 100 miler and Jordan Utter, who I just mentioned previously, he did the 100K. Nice. And he did that at Rocky. And uh, his wife, Michaela, she just signed up for an ultra too. So you start seeing people like slowly sign up for races and try these new things. Because I think before before people start working here, or, or I think this is the beauty in social media and the platforms that we build is you make these things that seem unachievable and unbelievable realistic. Mm -hmm. And then someone else says, they did it. If they did it, I can do it. Yeah. And they sign up, they commit, they go through the process. There's the highs and the lows. And then that unlocks this level of confidence. We're like, wow, I never thought I could do this. I never thought I could tow this line and finish the race. And I just did. What else can I do? Mm -hmm. What's next? Where is my actual potential? Am I, am I actually achieving a fraction of that? Mm -hmm. So I think that's one thing that we do here at BPN is we just bring awareness to, you don't know what you're capable of. 
you have a good chance of figuring it out if you just try. Yeah, no, that's great. I think, yeah, I think it's, you create an environment where those opportunities are available. People are just more likely to find themselves in that situation where they do something they previously didn't think they were able to do. And then they end up asking that same question you asked. I think, you know, I've had spots like that too, where you kind of have a breakthrough in a race where you hit a spot that you typically would start to fold a little bit. And you, for whatever reason, you break through it that day and then you have to look back. You're like, all right, I just leveled up. How many times did I miss that level in the past? You kind of try not to think too much about that to get, you don't want to turn a positive into a negative, but you do realize, oh yeah, okay, I've got more potential here than I thought. What else can I get through that I previously set a limitation on? And I think it's just such a great experience for life because, you know, you translate into almost anything after that. For a hundred mile race for you, is there a certain point at every race where you're like, if I can just get to this mileage or this point and feel good, Mm -hmm. it's going to be a good race. Yeah. Usually when I hit like right around where my longest long run from the buildup was, and usually that's going to be, if it's like a flat runnable course, probably around 30 miles, give or take is typically, unless I'm doing some racing leading into it, which isn't entirely uncommon, but I'm usually looking at the, the long, my long run development to get those clues so usually if I get to 70 and I don't feel like the wheels are coming off and I can comprehend like a one more long run is what I always say. It's like, I'll usually do like, you know, six to eight weeks of like pretty like focused long run development at the end of each plan. And with that time, I'm just thinking about just like normalizing that to the degree where it's almost like a dress rehearsal for when I hit 70 at the race itself. So then if I do the things right from one through 70, get there feeling that way, then it's just like, oh, I did this you know, maybe a dozen times before uh, um, the race itself. And then it doesn't really feel like I'm doing this hundred miler that I might only do a couple of a year or one a year or sometimes none a year. And, and uh, which is kind of hard to kind of reach back to the previous one when you're looking at that kind of a timeline. So that's kind of where I start to get confident. I think in a race, if, uh, if uh, things are going well and I can wrap my head around that. When I was working with you for Rocky, I remember during that prep and I'll go back, you know, there's some of my photos I have during that prep as well. And there's like just photos of my watch yeah. of like 30, 30 mile runs. 30 mile runs. Like, <laughs> I was just clipping 30 mile runs. Like it was, it was nothing. Mm-hmm. And I was doing all those runs in my neighborhood too. Yeah. Like central Texas, small neighborhood. I was like back and forth yeah. like for hours. But a 30 mile run on a Saturday morning for me was, it, it wasn't super straining. It was just, mm-hmm. yeah, let's go log some miles. Mm-hmm. Looking back on that, I'm like, that was like a really good prep. Yeah, it's interesting because I think, I mean, it eats up a lot of time, obviously, which is probably the biggest factor where you you have like a Saturday and you get to the end of the day and you're like, felt like it was half a day. It's like, well, yeah, because half the day you were running. But yeah, yeah, it does kind of, you get into a bit of a rhythm and kind of almost a meditative state, I think, after a while when you're doing those and you just sort of just clip away at it. And I think that's where the mental aspect of those long runs are just, just as powerful, in my opinion, as any of the physiological adaptations that are occurring because you get into that ability to just really compartmentalize. And I really like the short loop setups for that very reason too, where now you've kind of pre-programmed a scenario where like, let's say you're doing like a three mile loop and you're going back to grab a bottle of water or whatever it happens to be. You know, you, you're usually not thinking about, you know, the fourth three mile loop, you're just going to finish the one you're doing and then you'll worry about the next one. I think that just puts you in a position to kind of do that same thing on race day as well. I was actually thinking about that because right now my, my average morning run is five miles. Mm-hmm. It's like what I'm, I'm doing right now. And sometimes those five mile runs feel like forever. Yeah. And, you know, in comparison to the, the long 30 mile runs I was doing, 
I was thinking back to like, where was my mind at during those 30 mile runs? And same thing for like a hundred mile race. Mm-hmm. If you start thinking about mile 80, 90, a hundred at mile five, 10, 15, I mean, mentally you're, you're going to be done. Mm-hmm. So it's just like taking these small segments. I would do like five miles at a time. Just focus on this one mile. Just focus on this five mile segment. Or I'd play a game where I'd be like, how long can I not look at my watch mm-hmm. and then try to guess what mile I'm at? Yeah. <laughs> like 5.69. And it's crazy how accurate you get. Yeah. 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 You get that internal clock and with pacing too, whereas sometimes you get so used to like the effort that's going to produce it and you understand where your fitness is at and you can just like, okay, this is going to be, you know, whatever pace. And then you look down and it's within a second of that. And that always gets really interesting when you start to like understand your body the way you do when you're doing that stuff. And I also think with the long run, the way I like to prepare too, it's such a reduction in intensity. It almost is like a bit of a relief, at least at first. Sometimes the miles pile up by the end of the plan, but like you go through like short intervals and long intervals and that sort of stuff for a good chunk of the plan. And you just do some long run development in there too. But then you get to like the back-to-back long runs and stuff that are going to be in a lot of hundred mile plans. And it's almost just like, oh sweet, I can just go out there and kind of like be like in a really low heart rate relatively speaking and kind of just cruise and not have to think about like that. There's just a different level of focus required to hit a pace that's faster than like that enters like moderate and high intensity, in my opinion. And then when you remove that, you feel like you can go forever because it's just a little bit more of a freeing, freeing mindset, I think to some degree. Oh yeah. Like me for a marathon prep as opposed to an ultra prep, even though it's still like they're both running Mm -hmm. the intent, the strategy, both physical and mental, completely different things. Like my mindset going into a uh, a Wednesday morning tempo workout at marathon pace or, or, you know, anaerobic threshold pace for a marathon prep, that mindset and thought process, as opposed to like a 20 mile, slow, easy aerobic run on a Saturday morning, two completely different experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. The only, the hard thing about the the long runs is I, t- I, I, I hate like the logistic side of it if I can avoid it. So then it's like, you have to like, still think like, if I want this to continue to feel good, I got to make sure I'm drinking water and taking in whatever nutrition and electrolytes and that yeah. stuff. Um, but, and then you, you just learn to do it though, which is, which is good. So, I mean, this is a little bit of a pivot, but like my wife and I just moved to Austin recently. So we were both from the Midwest. We understand humidity, but we spent uh, well, I spent seven years in dry climates. She spent four. Uh, so coming back and training in the humid weather was just a huge, like kind of reminder to me is like, Oh, you do things different in humid heat versus, versus dry heat. And one of those was just like in the dry heat in Phoenix, like you could, you could have like a thin layer on. And if you kept that a little wet, it was actually a little nicer than having like bare skin showing. You try doing that out here and you overheat so fast even if you're shirtless, you start to overheat way faster in the humid weather. At least that's what my experience was this summer. And you just end up finding like different logistical things you have to kind of do to manage your workouts comparatively. So is that something that you're, that you're planning depending on what your challenge is, is like, I got to do this run. So now I need to set up the logistics for it. Or are you outsourcing that to someone else to kind of handle for you or? No, I, I, uh, I still handle that. And it really depends on like, what I'm training for time of the year, what the workout is specifically like for this, you know, last marathon prep, we have these big 20, 22 mile workouts and they'd be segments of like marathon pace. So maybe it's a, a few mile warm up, and then 
three miles at marathon pace, one mile backed off by 20 seconds, three miles marathon pace, you know, one mile backed off, so on and so forth. And the, the race was uh, May 29th of this past year. So, you know, some of these big workouts were March, April, even early May. So here in, in Texas, we're not expecting or anticipating really hot weather, but there'd be, there was one morning, I think it was a 22 mile workout day. It was just like a, a it was blazing. Mm-hmm. It was hot. So, you know, you're trying to back up that workout as early as possible and do it, you know, starting at 5 a.m. Yeah. to make sure you're done before the sun starts coming up. And then it's having more electrolytes, more, uh, more fuel, more carbohydrates at each one of those checkpoints. Uh, obviously, I, I start cramping up more, mm-hmm. especially being a bigger guy when it's warmer out. But when it's like a, a cold, brisk morning, I mean, right now, these mornings here in Texas. Oh, they've been great the last couple of weeks. <laughs> beautiful. And I was just in Nashville this, uh, this, earlier this week, and I, I woke up, it's like 48 degrees and running, and you just feel like you're, you're cooking these miles. Mm-hmm. Like one of my favorite sayings and quotes is summer miles bring false miles. Yeah. Cause you log these tough miles and you know, Texas here. Mm-hmm. And I was always doing my runs here in Texas at five, 6am, especially in the summer. Cause if you try to run at three, 4pm, you're smoked. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will intentionally plan when I'm going to run, what days I'm going to do these big workouts on based off the weather. And then control what I can control. But at the same time, sometimes you can't control certain variables mm-hmm. and you just got to learn how to deal with it. But that's a really good way to, to build re- real resiliency and then learn how to pivot and adjust a plan accordingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was doing high school cross country, the first couple of years, I mean, it was like in fall. So it would start at the beginning of school year. So it's still hot in September and this was in Wisconsin. So I remember the temperatures would finally crack and, you know, we'd have these weekday meets at like you know, three, four, five PM. So it's like in the beginning of the season, it's blazing hot during them. And then all of a sudden the temperatures break and you do a couple Saturday morning ones and you run like significantly faster than you did like a week prior. And you think like, wow, I just developed this like amazing amount of fitness in like one week's time. It's like, no, the temperatures just dropped 20 degrees. You got yeah. the full fitness bump. And, uh, and the rest of the gains are kind of a little more linear, I guess, comparatively. You do have some breakthroughs throughout, but a lot of those I think are mindset as much as anything. Everything else is a little more consistent. I think sometimes you got to be honest with yourself too, because as that weather starts to transition, it's like, wow, I was, I was running the same pace. My heart rate was 10 beats per minute mm-hmm. lower. Well, yeah, but it was also 15 degrees yeah. you know, cooler, so... Let's be, uh, let's be honest with ourselves and look at the data and what it's telling us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was just analyzing a, a coaching plan for one of my clients and we're just trying to figure out kind of like where, where he's at, where we should like target his race pace and things like that. And, and I was just looking back at a few of his other buildups and his heart rate and then his pace is there. So it, it was just saying like, okay, well, where can we see the weather being consistent and your training being consistent and then compare these numbers to find out where you're at compared to that and then start looking at race goal times and things like that. And it's, there's a lot of variables to consider, but it's also kind of fun to, to dig into them to some degree. Well, it's like the weather when I did Rocky this past year, it's pretty perfect. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was February here in Texas. It was cooler in the morning, the evening, the sun came out in the the afternoon, but it was probably still 55 ish degrees. 
and it was perfect. Like I, I can move fast that entire race. And I think we finished that one 19 hours, 13 minutes. And, mm-hmm. you know, coming off of Leadville, Leadville for me was like 27 hours and I think it was close to 28 hours. Um, shaved off a lot of time going into Rocky then. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about Leadville because, you know, training in Texas, obviously there are, you know, there's, there's the specificity, which I think is important, but then it's also, you got to be realistic too. It's like, you know, if you're doing a race like Leadville, unless you live out in the mountains, it's like the level of specificity you can get is going to be much lower than what you can get on a course like Rocky when you're living in the same state, essentially. So, um, when you went out and did Leadville, how much of that did you kind of like pre-anticipate with, uh, okay, this is going to be a lot more difficult because we're at like 10,000 feet and then only going higher. I live at sea level. Was that something that was a little bothersome to you going in or were you like, this is just something I'm going to have to deal with and we'll get it done one way or the other? Uh, a little bit of both. I knew it was going to be the, one of those things that I, I could not match the, the conditions. Um, so my mindset going into it was, well, it's going a little naive, a little blind, uh, and then kind of just feel out in the race and adapt to the conditions that we're presented with. Mm-hmm. At the same time, some of the things that I was doing, I was like trying, I was trying to get more on some technical terrain. So there's a loop out here around Lake Georgetown called Goodwater Loop. It's a 26 mile loop that goes around Lake Georgetown. I hopped on there for a bunch of my runs, and it is very technical, but it's a different type of technical. Like it didn't match the the technical of Leadville by any means, but I at least could start to get used to just navigating some, some technical train other than just a flat road or trail. I ended up buying one of those Hypoxico altitude oh, systems, okay. mm-hmm. which I don't think did anything. <laughs> um, I used it for some training. I tried sleeping with it, but my wife after a few times was like, we're not doing this. <laughs> it, it sounded like I was on a ventilator. Yeah. Cause it's like, yeah, <laughs> it's so loud. And I had this tent around my head. And my wife's like, what happens if like it stops putting oxygen in the air? I was like, I think I'll wake up. <laughs> she wasn't having that. So we like, we didn't do the hypoxico chamber too long, but those are like the two things that I, I tried to implement in preparation for. Um, when I got out there though, I mean, when I got to Leadville, I went out for like a, I'm going to do eight miles like right when I got out there just to feel it out. Mm-hmm. And I could tell, yeah, I felt heavier lungs felt heavier, couldn't breathe as well, but it was beautiful. So I think like the beauty of what I was running in completely just like mitigated what I was feeling in my chest and in my lungs. Mm-hmm. And then once the race started, I didn't even think about it. Like I felt, I felt solid. I didn't feel the altitude. You know, we started like 10,000 feet of elevation gets up to around 13,000 feet. I didn't start feeling altitude until I got back from Hope's Pass the second time, at like mile 62. And at mile 62, I stopped, I changed, I ate some food, and I took off again. And that was probably the longest I stopped at a checkpoint. And the first thing you do on a Hope's Pass, you start climbing this, this trail, and I could feel it there. And I was like, uh-oh, like this feels different. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was breathing through a straw and for like mile 62 to the finish line, I was struggling to breathe like really, really tough. And it was like breathing through a straw. And I get to a point where I couldn't even run anymore because when I would try to run and put out a bigger effort, 
I felt like I was, I couldn't get a big deep breath and I was going to suffocate and die. Mm-hmm. So that last like 38 miles sucked. Yeah. Leadville, I haven't done Leadville. My wife has, and I've coached a bunch of people who've done it. And obviously it's a popular race with ultra running. So you hear all it, you follow it closely comparatively to a lot of other races. It's like the way that course is set up is it will make you pay for an early mistake so badly. And I think like ultra running in general, we probably have a little bit of an appeal to starting a little too fast. So you do that in, at Leadville and it's like, you're going to pay for that. It's on that second go at Hope Pass for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I went out, I went out pretty hot. Yeah. And I did that first 50 miles in 11 hours. Mm-hmm. So in my head mentally, I'm like, oh dude, I'm, I'm going sub 25. Yeah. I'm getting this. Uh-huh. And on my way back, going up Hope Pass the second time, I mean, I felt it, but in my mind, I was like, it's all, it's all flat after this. Yeah. For some reason, I was telling myself, I, this, I'm over the biggest part. I feel like I was climbing a whole other mountain from the last 38 miles. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I paid for, for that going out so hot in the, the first half, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's like, it's such a hard thing in your mind because at no point are you going fast relative to like what you could do in a given day for like a workout or something like that. But then the cumulative fatigue of that and you at the environment like Leadville and then you get humbled pretty quickly and you look back and it's, it's hard to look back at some of those races too. Cause you think like you see the paces, you're like, why couldn't I just gone a few minutes per mile faster there? And in the time you couldn't, but in the in your mind, it's easy to kind of trick yourself and then do it again later. <laughs> well, did I, did I tell you what happened to me after Rocky Raccoon where I passed out? Oh, after? No, I don't yeah. think so. So my, my wife hates the story. Like, <laughs> She wanted to kill me after this, but when I finished Rocky and I finished Rocky feeling so strong mm-hmm. across the finish line, I was like, all right, uh, let's get back to the Airbnb. Yeah. And after Leadville, I, I collapsed on the couch and passed down for a few hours and I crossed the finish line of Rocky and my arms, my hands, my fingers were so swollen, mm-hmm. like so swollen. They were swollen around my watch. And that was the first thing I noticed. I was like, mm, that's weird. Like this hasn't happened before. So we went right from the finish line, hopped in the truck, drove back to the Airbnb. I'm thinking like, I'm gonna make an epic meal when we get back. I'm gonna get a shower. I'm gonna get a good night's sleep. And we got back. First thing I did, because I was freezing, probably mm-hmm. finished the race and it was 30 degrees and went right in the shower. And I cranked that shower up as hot as it would go. And in that Airbnb, the heater or the furnace was in the bathroom as well. Mm-hmm. So the whole bathroom was super hot. <laughs> and I'm standing in the shower for a long extended period of time. And I slowly started getting dizzy. And in my head, I'm like, okay. And I, I've never passed out in my life before, but I'm thinking, I think I'm about to pass out. So what I need to do is I need to get from the shower to the bed as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. And I open the shower door and take one step out and black out. Oh no. So from my perspective, that's what I'm feeling and seeing. My wife, on the other hand, is sitting in the bedroom outside of that bathroom. And all she sees, it's like 3 a.m. She sees this big naked guy stumbling, <laughs> stumbling to the bed. And she's like, Nick, what are you doing? And all of a sudden, I just go face first, <laughs> butt naked, soaking wet. And I hit the ground. And she starts screaming. She's yeah. like, oh my gosh. She probably thinks you're dying. She thought I was yeah. dead. And the whole BPN team this time is in the living room. 
So girls and guys. Yeah. So they hear my wife screaming. They bust the door. <laughs> they see me <laughs> naked on the ground. And I come to, and I had like this little, someone put a little hand towel across my butt, cover my butt cheeks. And someone's uh, putting spoonfuls of honey in my mouth. Uh-huh. And I came to, and I was like, what is going on? And I, I passed out. Yeah. I'm assuming it's because, you know, a few things, but if I had to guess, it's because my body temperature was so out of control. Mm-hmm. And then I just, I shocked it by all this, this hot steam and, and warmth. Mm-hmm. I passed down. I came to really quickly as soon as I hit the ground. It was embarrassing because I turned around and my whole team's there and I'm naked. Yeah. And uh, I ended up like, I went to sleep, felt fine the next day, but that happened after Rocky. Yeah, that's crazy. I had a, uh... I wonder if that's like a blood volume thing too, because you said the the swelling could have been like some sort of like like hydration electrolyte imbalance, which it gets tough when you're 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 running that long. I mean, you can get sweat rates and things tested, and you can do things all the right. You can do everything the right way, and then some sort of like situation changes it. Uh, I had that after Western States in 2018. I felt like I felt pretty rough the last like 10, 15 miles of that race. But not like, you know, the lights are going to go out or anything like that. And then as soon as I crossed the finish line, I stopped. And within like a minute, I started getting lightheaded. And I remember there was like some, I can't remember, it was some, some journalist who was there wanted to like get a couple of quotes about the race or something. And I said, sure. And he comes up, he's talking to me. And I just told him like, I think I'm going to fall over. So they like grabbed me, took me into the med tent and I laid down. I was like kind of going in and out for a little bit. And they gave me like some warm broth and I drank that. It was like the light switch went right back on. So I just assume for me anyway, I mean, it could have been different for your situation, but I just assume maybe I was behind on sodium or something like that. And then I mean, it was hot that year. So I might've been drinking too much water, not enough electrolytes. And then when I got that into the system, it was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> Start functioning again. <laughs> My stomach turned on me during Rocky too. Mm-hmm. I think mile maybe 65 for like 10 miles. And I kept going to the bathroom. I couldn't stop going to the bathroom for, for like 10 miles. And then it got better. And I was fine for that back half, but I got behind on electrolytes mm-hmm. and fuel and water during that, that segment. Yeah. And I'm assuming that threw some things off. Yeah. And you can't really catch up. That's the problem. I mean, you can't even stay on top of it entirely for a hundred miles. I think the, I mean, we'll learn more in the coming years, but this is probably going to stick to mo- to the, to a large degree, which is just like, there's, I mean, there's a finite amount of water your body can really process like per hour. And, you know, if it's warm or if you're out there for as long as you are for a hundred miles, you're going to run a level of dehydration no matter what. And if you try to keep up with it, you're going to create more problems than solutions. So you just kind of got to let yourself get a little bit dehydrated and hopefully not get so dehydrated that it compromises performance. Thankfully, it's a lower intensity event. So like, you can get a little more dehydrated without it like hitting you that hard. But then you have a situation like that where, you know, your stomach turns on you for a bit. Uh, you know, some people, they, you know, like puke and then they're losing fluids and electrolytes through that or, you know, whatever happens, they eat something weird and their body starts pulling fluids into the digestive tract. And then it's removing that from being able to do the other functions. And, and yeah, you have weird situations that, that come and get you at the end sometimes. And, usually you hope you cross the finish line. So at least you got got across the finish line before passing out. But that's a pretty, pretty crazy story. How often do you find these ultra athletes, um, like under fueling during races? Um, that, under, that, that aren't coached by someone sure. like yourself. 
Yeah, so underfueling, it's hard to know because it's going to depend on the person to a large degree as to what their needs are. The The recommendations as they stand now is to try to hit like 50 to 70 grams of carbohydrates per hour if you're following like a moderate carbohydrate diet. And, you know, that's pretty approachable for most people, but from a just like, I think just like a logistic standpoint, you know, it's a couple gels and maybe nibbling on something else and you're there. Uh, but there's also like the, the research they've done on this would indicate about six out of every 10 ultra runners are going to experience some sort of gastrointestinal issue, like similar to what you, maybe you had. Uh, and then half of that six out of 10 is going to have a fairly severe situation where they're stopping constantly, use the bathroom, throwing up, uh, where it really impedes their, their progression to a large degree. And so at that point, it's like, is not getting enough the problem or is it finding a way where what's going to sit in your stomach consistently over the hours and hours you're going to be out there? Is that enough to defend muscle glycogen? So I think you do have, I mean, you hear stories, there's, um, I think Tom Evans, he just got third at UTMB. I think he's, he reported taking in like 90 some grams of carbohydrate, or I don't know if it was all carbohydrate, but 90 grams of whatever for, uh, uh, per hour for the entire race. And, and he crushed it. So he was able to do it. And then you get other folks who, if most people, you know, they're pushing up to those numbers, they're going to have a digestive issue of some sorts or some sort of gut issue, probably if they're not, um, out there, like really practicing that approach often enough that their body gets used to it. So I'm not sure if it's, uh, I guess what I'm saying is like, I think the range between what one person needs and the other person needs can be quite large. Uh, and then, and they, so it becomes more of an individual question than a like, everyone's not eating enough or no one's eating enough. Um, I think that one of the big problems that people sometimes face is they don't eat enough for a little while and then they try to catch up by having a big bolus of food and then they get on this roller coaster experience of just like kind of misery trying to digest that and then trying to continue to fuel after that versus having a plan where they can kind of trickle in the hydration and fuel to a degree where you almost kind of like don't really recognize that you're eating any one thing specifically in, in a large quantity because you're having just so small amounts of it throughout the course. Um, That's been my technique for the races I've done. It's just constantly having this steady stream of nutrition going into my body. Mm -hmm. Never one big dump of food. Yeah. Yeah. I think you have to, I mean, your mind goes to like, oh, I'm hungry. I'm going to have a sandwich or something like that. And it's like one sandwich when you're just going about your day, like not a problem. One sandwich when you're about to head back out and start running again can sit in your stomach like a brick for a while. So I always tell my coaching clients, like if you're going to do some solid foods um, and you go through an aid station and you grab something like that, if you grab a sandwich or something equivalent to that, you know, eat a quarter of it and just bring the rest with you and just feel out for a little bit, maybe even just five, 10 minutes. How is that sitting in my stomach? If it's like, oh, it's fine, then you know, have a little bit more and have a little more and just ease that in there. I think that's usually the best pace forward. I think they'll say like nibble and sip is kind of the recommendation that is kind of easier to understand with any type of a fueling strategy. I think the best thing I ate during Rocky was, I ate the full sandwich, but it was yeah. the, the fried chicken Chick-fil-A sandwich, <laughs> the, the Chick-fil-A sauce and the pickles, man. Like I have a photo of me eating that. And I was yeah. like, I ate that, I think between mile 20 and uh, after mile 20, because it was a 20 mile loop. Mm -hmm. And I came back after mile 40. I was like, hey, do we have any more chicken sandwiches? Yeah. Like, we ate, ate them all. I was like, oh my gosh. I was thinking about that for 20 miles. <laughs> that was your, your incentive and it wasn't there. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I think at mile like 85, maybe I had a, uh, was it, uh, like a 
a chicken quesadilla out there. Uh-huh. That was another one of those things. I was like, holy crap, this is one of the best things I've ever eaten in my life. Yeah. I wonder if you were craving the salt. I, I was craving salt. Yeah. So maybe that's why you passed out. Yeah. Could be interesting. Yeah. There's all sorts of those stories out there and it's always hard to really pin down. I mean, most things, I mean, the digestive issues, another one um, I'm looking to bring on one of the guys who's researched this stuff, but it's even, you, you take the best available information and there's still like half a dozen plus different things that could result in some of these situations. So then it's kind of like, how do you figure out which one it is? And if it's something, it's usually not happening in the beginning of the race. So it's like, how do you even stress test it in a training run? Because if it's not happening in like the first 30 miles, you're probably not going to have a good opportunity to practice it to the degree that you will on race day until you're out there at mile 80 and you know double digit hours and finding out, okay, I guess this worked or didn't work. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It, it is very hard to study and control mm -hmm. because you have to get to a certain point to, to feel it. But for me, I always went into it like, okay, if I reach this point, whether it happens or not, how do I, how do I pivot? How do I adjust my nutrition, my, my running pace? Like, what do I do to mitigate it getting worse? Mm -hmm. That was always my approach. Yeah. Managing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And to a degree, I think that's what you have to do too. I think when you get into a situation, I mean, I just think like hundred perfect hundred milers are, don't really exist. It's for anybody. It's like, how do you minimize the situations that go off course or off plan? And then uh, when they do happen, how do you like quickly address them and make sure you're making the right decision so it doesn't cost you too much? And I think anytime you have a, you have a great race, you can always still look back and think like, well, if that would have went a little different and that one, went a little different, I'd get a couple minutes here, a couple minutes there. And that's probably an endless game, but, um, it's interesting nonetheless. Uh, have you had a perfect race? Um, on paper, I've had some that maybe looks that way. Like when I ran 11, 19 for a hundred miles, uh, I negative split that by two miles. So my first 50 was five hours and 40 minutes. My second 50 was five hours and 38 minutes. And I think I ran my fastest miles in like the last 10. So in terms of kind of like pacing and that sort of thing, it was about as good as it can get. Um, I think there was probably, there's there probably some spots in there though where I could have maybe taken a couple more risks early. I definitely had a bit of a low point kind of in the 40 mile range where I was actually questioning whether I would even like give it my all that day or if I would, I actually had another race like six weeks down the road that was originally going to be my A race that year. So uh, I sort of was thinking, well, maybe I just kind of pull back a little bit and treat this as kind of like a lead in race to that. Um, thankfully I didn't cause that's my, been my fastest hundred mile to date. Uh, but yeah, I think like maybe if I had been a little more confident and that maybe five, 10 mile stretch in that area, I, I could have probably shaved a few more minutes off. Um, I think for that race, I stopped three times to use the bathroom for a total of maybe four and a half minutes. Um, my most efficient race, uh, for that sort of a setup was two stops for like 60 to 90 seconds. So, you know, perhaps I could do something differently, but it's, it's hard to know what, what, what was it? Cause I mean, it was three bathroom stops. So you kind of got to go, you got to go type of a situation. And, yeah. um, you know, what are you eating the day before and the day of that would maybe eliminate one or two or all of those and then give yourself three minutes. And, uh, but anytime I go into a hundred mile race where it's really controlled, like a short loop, I'm building in probably about five minutes in my pacing strategy for that situation, just because it's, you know, it's just, you know, it's 12 hours uh, of running for, for that type of an event. If you're doing the 12 hour or if I'm doing a hundred miles and it's on a runnable course, you know, I'm going to be right around that time. You just got to assume there's going to be probably a few things that are going to come up in that time frame that 
that you have to have a little bit of a cushion built in for. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors include Ultimate Direction and their hydration products, bottles, belts, packs, backpacks, vests, and LMNT's electrolyte powder. If you would like to support the show by checking out these products, head over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. And what is like the, the average pace on a race like that? That was like 647 and a half minute mile pace. My gosh. <laughs> you, for people just handing you a few, yep. like fuel? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, that's the other interesting thing about those type of races. I mean, this was on a 443 meter track. It was at actually the Olympic training facility in Milwaukee. And yeah, my wife and my, my family actually lives three miles from there. So it's like a, such a great setup for me. Uh, but yeah, I go around and if, if I ask for something, I get it like two minutes later, less actually. So like every lap, if I need something, I can get it the next lap. If they screw it up or I screw it up, then it's like, okay, big deal. It's, you know, less than two minutes and I will correct it. So usually I just have everything set up the way I want it with like kind of all my options that I potentially would want and then just ask for what I need. Sometimes I'll, depending on what I did in training um, from a fueling nutrition standpoint, I'll also sometimes just like have like a pretty strict strategy of like at this time, give me that at this time, give me that. And then they have a little bit more of a blueprint. So it's easier on them. And then if I deviate from it, I deviate from it, but at least we have something in, on paper so they can feel like I'm, they're not just like constantly responding to me. But <laughs> Did you find that during that, that race or that run, were you pretty like mentally and physically, was it pretty constant or were there like peaks and valleys of, of massive deviation from just constant? That one was about as constant as I've had from a race, just the way it felt throughout. Like I would say the still the most, most of the hundred milers I've done that last like third always feels like over half the race, if not more. Um, and usually that makes sense when I look at the splits because I'm usually running slower those last few miles, uh, versus running faster. Like I did at that one, uh, for that one, my, my lowest point was actually probably around mile 40. And I remember when I decided, okay, I'm going to keep the goal in place. I just need to get back on track. Usually what I do for those races is I have like a slow and a fast split that I like build into my pace where it's like, if I go faster than this, I need to pull back or I'm going to cost myself at the end. If I go slower than this, I need to get back in or I'm going to miss my, my, my a target. And I'd been slipping out on the slow end for a few laps. And that's when I started kind of questioning it. And that was maybe compounded a little more on that race. Cause I didn't feel great starting that race, relatively speaking. Like you see, you know, some races you feel like a shot out of a cannon right out the gate and you're just kind of like holding off that one. I felt like, like, uh, I don't know if I feel, feel awesome today or not. And you have a little bit of a doubt probably planted early on then. Uh, so that was probably the lowest part. But one thing I did there that I thought worked really well was I, I gave myself a few more laps to get back in to pace range before making any decisions and while I did that, while I was doing that, I started calculating if I, if I maintain this pace, where will I be at 50 miles and where will I be at hundred K? And once I got into back into pace, I actually felt a little better. So I was like, okay, well, if it feels better, I might as well stay. And then when I got to 50, I actually hit that a few minutes faster than I had planned. And then I got hundred K, I think it was maybe seven minutes faster than I had planned back at 40. So I knew I was heading in the right direction. And I just remember distinctly thinking at hundred K, uh, you know, seven, eight more miles and I'm inside my long run. Let's just get to that spot. And that was the next logical target. And then when I got there, I did kind of just an assessment of how I felt and I felt like I could do another long run. So at that point, I wasn't really thinking about a hundred miles. I was just thinking about 
trying to negative split a long run. And I think maybe one of the better things I did in training that year that wasn't necessarily intentional is I was doing my long runs on a track, which I typically do for a race like that. Uh, but I was running slightly faster than goal race pace, not by a ton. Uh, and I was usually running a bit faster in like the last half of that, like 30 miler on the track or whatever happened to be. And I think that kind of probably built in just like that routine and that practice of like, when I get to that point, you just start ratcheting down, ratcheting down. And then as long as the fueling, the hydration is going well, and I wasn't too egregious with pacing in the beginning, it just all kind of starts coming to it. And, uh, you know, I also probably had a bit of a extra incentive in that, like in 2015, I was in a position to break the world record for hundred miles through 80. I was actually ahead of pace. Uh, the, at that time, the current world record was 652 per mile. And I needed to average sevens for the last 20 miles in order to break it. And I just kind of progressively slowed and averaged like closer to seven and a half that last 20 miles. So I, I, so I broke the American record. This wasn't like a terrible day or anything, but I knew in the back of my mind, I was like, I was right there. I mean, striking distance is like 80 miles and a hundred mile. And I was right there where I needed to be. So that was like a little over five and a half years prior. So you think about that enough in those five and a half years when you get yourself back to that situation, I think it's like the incentive to like, not screw it up is maybe a little higher too. Yeah. So that was probably working in my favor a little bit too of just post past experiences kind of feeding into the current ones. I mean, when you're doing 400 or so laps on the track, at what point are you like, all right, now it's, now we're just coasting. Is it <laughs> one, one lap left? Is it five? Is it 10? Yeah. I mean, you kind of have to be coasting as much of it as you can Cause it's you, what I find is like you have all the available information there. Like they usually put these big screens up so you can see your split. So you can fatigue yourself mentally. I think by constantly looking at that overstressing, like, Oh, that lap was a half a second slower or two seconds slower. or That one was three seconds too fast. And you start burning so much mental energy doing that. What I find I have to do is get good enough. Like we were talking before at just kind of knowing what the pace is going to feel like then doing some spot checking on that. And then trying to just kind of get into a groove and almost like disassociate yourself from what you're doing. And one of the hardest questions I always get that I just still know if I have a great answer for it is just like, well, what are you thinking about to do that? I think the reality is I'm putting myself into kind of like a mental state where I'm not consciously thinking about it. Stuff's running through my head and things are motivating me and stuff like that. But it's so kind of disconnected that... I'm not recalling any of it. So then I finish the race and I can maybe think of like three or four things I thought of. And in my mind, I'm like, did I just like have that on repeat for the last 11, 12 hours? Or were there other things I've completely forgot? And uh, I think it's kind of probably similar to some sort of like meditation practice or that sort of stuff where you sort of get yourself into a bit of a, like a hypnotic state going around that loop all day long. And eventually it just becomes kind of like a groove you cut in your head and you just keep doing it. And um, I'm not sure if that's unique to me or if that's something that other people are doing and using as a lever. Uh, I think a lot of people in ultra running avoid the track for that reason. Cause it's like, Oh, well that's super monotonous. I hated the 10 K in college or the five K or the 3,200 or whatever they happen to be doing on a track. And they think like 400 and was like 402 and a third, I think is what it is technically for a hundred miles on a track. Like no way. <laughs> it's funny because I, when I go out and run my morning miles, it's very meditative. Like my, my, my brain's cooking. Mm -hmm. It's thinking of ideas and concepts and business strategies and I'm navigating issues in my life. Yeah. My brain's cooking. I don't intentionally try to, it just comes to me during a race though. 
like during a marathon where I'm putting on a bigger effort, I can't tell you what I'm thinking about during that race. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm almost not thinking of anything. I'm just feeling. Yeah. I'm like, okay, this feels, this feels good. Very aware, very conscious, but like, this feels good. This, this effort feels a little bit more than I'd like to be putting out right now. Mm-hmm. I'm getting a little nervous. Now, like I'm going a little slower. It's like, it's a, it's a completely different mindset and thought process as opposed to your easy morning run. Yeah. You, the way I would describe it, like if I think of just ultra running, the appeal to going out to the trails, the mountains and these races like Leadville is there's a lot of like really kind of unique changing, like, ex, like, like experiences throughout that, that are stimulus is out there and you're kind of moving from one to the next to some degree. And that's helpful. And then people think like, well, if I go on a track, that's all gone. You do one loop and you've seen the whole course. And then it's just like the first thing their mind goes to is monotony, boredom. What are you thinking about? And I think what I go to with that is like, it's sort of like if I'm looking at like, if I'm looking at like a picture that's like covering a huge portion of geography. Like you can see like some cool stuff, some big like change, like all oh, the trees change here, the, you know, the, the rock formations change and things like that. And you think if I zoom in, I'm only going to see one of those and it's going to be boring. And you zoom in, no, then you see like the birds, the insects, everything that's on top of that. And then it's just like a whole nother thing to analyze. So like you go to the track and you remove all that external stimulation. Like you said, now I'm feeling like, oh, this like really intimately, like I'm feeling like this, uh, you know, this little thing in my leg is feeling a little different than that one. Maybe I should like adjust this or uh, you just feel like, I feel like really smoother. You'd like remove the barriers to the point where you can kind of just move through that environment. And then that frees up your mind to just sort of enter like a little bit of a flow state that I, I, I'm sure people do it on the trails too, but like, I find it a lot easier to get to that spot when I remove the stimulus. Maybe it's like a, like a, a sensory deprivation, deprivation tank to some mm-hmm. degree where I'm not worried about tripping over a rock. I'm not worried about making a wrong turn you're not really about anything other than putting one foot in front of the other on a track. So it sort of removes some of the stimulus that would maybe uh, keep me from getting to that as easily. So maybe that's something that is helpful and why I keep going back to those events versus other ones. I've actually never thought about it that way. And I've always used the track for these bigger workouts, you know, like 400, 800, Mm -hmm. 1200 meter repeats. But when I do these workouts, I am hyper aware of, What's my, what's my heart rate feel like? Mm-hmm. What does this pace feel like? What do my legs feel like? Like hyper aware of my body and the effort and feel because there is no external stimulus that is stealing my mm-hmm. thought process in mind. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You can definitely analyze and it's reproducible too. So like if I go out for a long run, I feel a certain way. I can take inventory of that. And then if I feel that way on the track again, I know it wasn't because like, oh, I went on a different course. I was harder. The footing's different and things like that. And you give weather and stuff like that can impact it. But generally speaking, you're controlling about as much as you can expect at that point. And with that comes some advantages and disadvantages. I think it just probably depends on the person's outlook on it. But what I'm hearing is Nick's going to do a, a track ultra at some point. <laughs> I don't. I can't promise you that it's going to be <laughs> sub seven minute per mile pace. <laughs> Which will be out on one. Yeah. But uh I'd be I'd be interested. Yeah. And uh what I'm really interested in is these uh last man standing yeah. races. Mm-hmm. I was signed up for one that was supposed to be I think it was either August or September of this year. But we ended up having our baby in July. Mm-hmm. And I told my wife, like, hey, I'm anything I'm committed to or signed up for race wise, 
it's off the calendar mm-hmm. for the next couple of months. But these last man standing races are, are very interesting to me mm-hmm. because I think I could do pretty well in those. I think so. I think your mindset would be very conducive to that because you eliminate so much of like, you just eliminate a lot of what would normally bar someone from say winning a race because it you don't you do yourself any favors finishing that like loop in 40 minutes versus 59. You know, as long as you're under an hour and you're good. And so then it becomes, I think, who can manage sleep deprivation better, who can manage nutrition and hydration better, and who can stay kind of focused the longest. Because eventually it's like, it's the person who kind of loses focus that is going to slip up and miss their lap or, you know, decide oh, I'm not going out for this one. And then before the, you know, before they have a chance to course correct, they've already been, you know, eliminated and they can't go back and do that. So someone like you, I think, probably have that mindset of just like, you will do one more, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, after this, this whole like, you know, I'm, I'm building right now, I'm gaining size and strength and then we're going to document a dieting series. There will be another race that I want to do after that, whether that be a triathlon or, or an ultra or a marathon. What interests me about the ultra space is there's not one race that is the same. Mm-hmm. And, you know, marathon, it's 26.2 miles course profile might change a little bit, but if you want to be competitive in PR, you're going to choose the fastest, flattest course you can possibly find. Mm -hmm. But like, I've only done two ultras, but going into Rocky after Leadville, I wasn't trying to even compare the times because I saw them as two completely different races. So whatever I sign up for in the near future or next, I want to choose something not to PR another hundred miler, but that is challenging in its own. It's like this race is so unique. I want to do it for the experience and challenge myself. But it's like, can you compare 100 mile X to 100 mile Y? Maybe, but like there could be such massive variables between those two. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the appeal to a large degree too is like you, and then you get these like storied courses like Leadville, Western States. And, um, you know, now uh, like the 200 mile stuff is starting to get popular. So it's like, you know, now they're getting their own little personality about which one, how and kind of set up which way. And I remember when those first kind of came out, they were like, there were 200 mile races. And then there was the, the Moab 200, the Candace named it the Moab 200. And then everyone was like, it's 238 miles, call it a 238 mile race. It's like the, the ultra morning mentality is like, oh, well, just 38 miles, whatever. And yeah, <laughs> but people are going to, are going to want to know about that 38. <laughs> are, you, are you intrigued uh, with those distance races? Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to do some longer stuff. I think like what I've always, I've dipped my toe into some slightly longer stuff beyond a hundred miles, but not, not in any way that is like either impressive or consuming to a large degree from what my normal kind of protocol is. And the way I sort of look at it is, so I'm like, I'm 36. I think like from the hundred mile distance stuff, I mean, we've seen world records now for like 40 year olds in those distances and things like that. I think there's like there, but there will be a time where it's like, I'm not going to run my fastest hundred mile anymore. So to go on a track to try to run slower than I have in the past, isn't going to probably be all that appealing. And then it's like, well, what do I, assuming I still want to keep doing the sport, what is like, you know, what's some, some alternatives that can keep it exciting that I can still be competitive at. Uh, I think the longer stuff is just going to be, you can do it older. Uh, it probably benefits more, you benefit from more experience and things like that. So I think there'll be a day I, I do it. Um, but whether I do it in like a huge capacity where it's like, I'm trying to do all of them or anything like that is probably still to be determined. How do you think training in preparation looks 
for a hundred miler compared to a 200 miler? Cause obviously you're not just like, Oh, if you're doing a hundred mile a week, just do a 200 mile a week. Right. Yeah. Like, does it, does it change? Um, so the way I would look at it is I still think like, I still think a lot of the kind of tried and true endurance workouts are going to be beneficial regardless of whether you're doing a 5k, a hundred mile, a 200 mile where I think it deviates the most is you get to the point of the plan where you start working on kind of race day specific stuff where you really lean into that. And then it's like, if I'm doing a 5k, I'm going to probably lean heavy into like, you know, VO two max type workouts, short intervals and things like that. hundred mile, I'm going to probably be leaning into like aerobic threshold a lot. Uh, 200 mile, the biggest thing I think is just going to be like, there's no matter who you are, you're doing a fair bit of hiking, especially most of the 200s that I'm aware of. I'm not sure if there's, I mean, there's timed events. They're like 48 hours, 72 hours, six days where it's on a flat surface. You're just going to be doing some walking or hiking. So I think then it's just like mechanically you're, you're going to want to practice what you're doing on race day. So if I determine by doing this mountainous 200 miler that half the time I'm going to be hiking versus running, I'm going to need to practice that. So then my long run is going to be structured a little differently. So in theory, then I think I could increase the volume to a certain degree because the impacts gonna be lower on hiking than it will be on running. So you can get away with a little bit of that. Uh, but generally, generally speaking, I think it probably changes less than most people think it would. Uh, I think most people think 200 miles means you're out there like every day, just slogging hour after hour after hour. Um, and that's going to be the ticket. And, and in reality, I think there's a little bit of like proper dosage of that is going to go a long way, but overdoing, it's just going to make you like hate the event when you get to it. Yeah. What would you think about, cause in, from my perspective, like if I was training for a 200 plus mile race, first thing that comes to my mind is durability. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. I need to be durable mm-hmm. over these, this course, these, this long distance incorporating more strength training. Mm-hmm. Like would it be wrong to maybe not add more running mileage, but add more resistance training to build durability and preparation for a race like that? Yeah, I think you're right. I think durability becomes a question. And I think it, I think the whole like power weight dynamic that you hear a lot about in running is gets a lot less, uh, I wouldn't say important, but it becomes less, less specific. Uh, so what I would say with something like that, I think you can get away with doing a lot more variety. So whereas if I'm training for a marathon, there's really no way around it. Like there's certain things you just kind of have to do in order to really get yourself peaked. And like, if you decide, Oh, I'm going to go for a bike ride instead of my run today might not translate very well. Whereas for something like 200 miles, I think it's just all about being able to be active for long periods of time and convincing yourself you can do that. So if you do that through like, you know, a run, a strength session, a bike ride, a hike, and you're just like kind of compiling all these different like activities together that gets you moving around and gets in, gets you confident about moving your body for long periods of time, you're going to go along a lot longer with the way with that than, than you would in some of these other disciplines. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting stuff and it's just never ending too. There's a race over in New York that does this. Uh, it's like just over half a mile loop and they're, they try to get to 3,100 miles. So essentially the equivalent of running across the country and they break it down where you can run for 16 hours a day and then you have to take eight hours off every night. Uh, but everything else is just up to the person. So like they're just chipping away at that, that little, like I think it's a 0.58 mile loop and trying to get to 3,100 miles. And you know, that's the extreme side of the sport obviously, but how long is it taking people to do that? Um, I'm trying to remember, I think it's like, I want to say like the fast people are in like the high 40, low 50 days. If I remember, I could be wrong about that. Um, That's insane. Yeah. It's a long time. 
it's a long time. There's I mean, a, you got to like take off work for that. Yeah, for sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, there's a guy, uh, Pete Koselnick. Um, he's got the the record for the transcontinental run, which is just San Francisco to New York. He did it uh, in 42 days, almost exactly six weeks. It was like six weeks and six hours, and um, he averaged like 72 and a half miles a day. And it's just, and that's like, that's a little more logistically demanding, obviously, than being on a, a half mile loop, which uh, I think adds a whole another variable when you're running out on these like kind of abandoned country roads more or less for a huge chunk of it. And you have an RV following you along, but yeah, I've seen a few people do, mm-hmm. uh, do that at course from California to New York. Yeah. Yeah. Some, yeah. You'd be, it's surprising. I think to a lot of people, how many of you have actually done it. And then the stories that are kind of based around that, but yeah, it's crazy. Um, I think I have one more question for you if you don't mind. Uh, yeah. Uh, so all this stuff you do, like, you know, you, you get into the strength world, you get into kind of like the Olympic distance running world, the ultra running world, these all kind of have their own communities. And then each one of those communities sometimes have their sub communities. Mm-hmm. You're a big name and people know who you are. Is there, do you get a lot of like, I just think of like people get kind of a little, sometimes they get a little kind of attached to whatever their discipline is where they think like, I mean, we see this with ultra running to a degree where it's like, someone's like, you get someone who does really well at Western States and they decide not to go back the next year. And there's a, there's a group of people like, what, what you, you're not coming back to Western that kind of a mentality. Yeah. So like moving in and out of these things from one to the next, do you get a lot of pushback from, from any of the communities and stuff like that when, when all is said and done? It's very, it's very good question and very interesting. It's uh, been a massive observation of mine the last couple of years where, you know, I started in strength and bodybuilding and that community, when I first found it was like the bodybuilding.com forums. Sure. 2012, 2013, and people are logging their workouts and the supplements they're taking. And then like I got involved in YouTube fitness mm-hmm. in the bodybuilding and powerlifting space. And that's a community I first knew of and I thought was the fitness industry um, early on. So I, I tell that story because I think that for a lot of people who like find one one sport, one community, it's very easy to think that that's the only fitness community in the world like, mm-hmm. that is dominant. And then when I started exploring like the endurance space, I realized, hold on, that's just, that's a sub part of the fitness community. You have like this marathon running community. You have like this uh, Ironman community, triathlon community, cycling community, like ultra community. And there's all these different communities in fitness. So, I've learned over time to respect every community for, for what they love to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also realized that each one of these communities has uh, strengths and weaknesses yeah. and ego, and they hate people who aren't a part of that community. So what I found is, you know, when I first started putting out running content, uh, a lot of people in the running community were pushing it back against me. Like, you're a bigger guy. You'll never, I said, I wanted to run sub three. You'll never run sub three. Like people were making videos and there's articles and forums like Nick bear will never run a sub three hour marathon. Really? <laughs> and I was like, well, if I put the training in, like, yeah. I'm sure I can do it. And I went and I trained to do it and I failed. I ran a three twenty four marathon in Austin and everyone was saying, I told you, you wouldn't do it. I was like, well, I'm just going to keep training until I do it. Yeah. And I kept training and I, I ran a sub three hour marathon 
And then I decided I wanted to uh, you know, go into the triathlon space. And uh, very quickly, like, hey, like, you, don't, you don't belong in this space. Like, you're bigger. Go back to strength training. Go back to weightlifting. Go back to running. And I think what I found is I'm not trying to just, like, jump into these communities and spaces to grow my platform. But I'm very interested in, like, different parts of fitness and sports. Like, I want to learn. And I'm, I'm very conscious and aware that when I start training in a new way, I'm like a, a new fawn that was just born. Mm-hmm. I know nothing. I want to learn. Like when I started doing triathlon, there is so much to learn about triathlon, like everything about your bike mm-hmm. and certain bike workouts and big gear workouts and then swimming. And it's such a, a technique driven, um, you know, sport swimming is still for me one of the most difficult things I've ever done. Yeah. And then like running and putting running on top of cycling and swimming, the triathlon community was very like, you got to wear your socks a certain way, you got to do all this stuff. And I think what I've realized is once people realize that I just want to learn from these communities, it is more welcoming. But whenever I announce a new challenge or I have historically, there's always been pushback. Yeah. But my intent is very pure and clear and meant to be helpful for a lot of other people is I want to share this journey. I want to document this journey so that others aren't afraid to enter as well because certain spaces are intimidating, mm-hmm. right? Like I remember walking into a bike shop for my first time. I was so intimidated. Yeah. I walked in and the guy said, can I help you? I was like, yeah, I'm looking for a, a bike to do a triathlon. He said, what, what race are you doing? I said, uh, Ironman Florida. He said, have you ever done a triathlon before? Said, nope. Uh, you want to do an Ironman for your first one? Yep. So it's like, it was an intimidating yeah. you know, space to walk into. But uh, when the intent is clear and you want to help and you want to learn along the way, I found that these communities are very welcoming. But the endurance community has been, it's been amazing. Like the people are great, especially the ultra community where... You know, what I found with the ultra community, it's not a bunch of elitists. It's people who want to like go suffer. Yeah. They want to yeah. go find this pain. <laughs> a lot of them have some dark demons within them. And then out on the course, it's super welcoming and inviting. But I do remember when I was out in Leadville, it was probably like mile 45, 50 maybe. And this lady was standing outside of like her, her cottage <laughs> and it was at close to one of the turnarounds and she pointed at me and says, those biceps don't belong out here on a race like this. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> well, all that being said, like all these like communities in the fitness space are amazing. Um, I think it's great that like there are so much pride behind what people do and passion behind how they want to spend their time and and be fit. Um, But my goal, whenever I try something new is just be a part of that community. I don't want to take it over. Mm -hmm. I want to be a part of, and I want to learn from people who have the experience and who have done it before because I know by no means have any or all of the answers, but I want to figure out what does it mean to run a sub three hour marathon? How do you train? How do you train for an ultra? How do you train for a triathlon? I'm, I'm genuinely, I was curious. 
And by putting myself through that, I've learned so much that I believe has helped hundreds of thousands of people along the way. So mm-hmm. that's kind of my take on these communities. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So, I mean, people, obviously they, they have like a connection point where they sort of become a disciple of X sport or X activity. And it's like this new person coming in type of a mentality. And it's, you know, if you're recognizable, it's the whole nother part. It's, uh, it, it gets, it gets interesting. I think like, like you said, most people, I think, especially in the alternate community are pretty welcoming and want people in, want more people coming. And I think it's been the most interesting thing for me is just watching how the community sort of like maneuvered its growth over the last 10 years. Like when I first got into ultra running, it was just starting to grow again. Um, and now it's like the people that come into it are, I wouldn't say drastically different. There's still like the kind of the same types of people that were always coming into it. But now I think it's gotten even more broad. I think the pandemics had a piece to that puzzle where people were not able to go to the gym as much. They decided, hey, I'm going to start maybe running for a little bit. And they realized I actually like this because they were kind of forced to get through that first like four to six weeks where it just kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they started like, you know, following someone like yourself or, you know, someone who's got like a pretty big platform that's doing ultra marathons. It's like, Hey, maybe I want to do that. It's like, I get more coaching clients now from like strength sports, uh, like hunting communities and, you know, different areas of life that I would have never expected. We're going to ever be interested in this crazy ultra marathon sport now. And I think guys like yourself are partly responsible for sort of that kind of that awareness that, that is needed for more people to feel like they can do it. Cause I think like, you know, get someone who's um, kind of a strength athlete and wants to do an ultra marathon. And like you said, is intimidated by like, I don't even know where to start. And they see someone like you do it. And then they're like, Oh, well it can be done. That barrier has been broken in their mind by you versus them having to like, you know, risk that, that exposure and, and be that first one. So I think like you're trailblazing for the sport diversity department. <laughs> I think a lot of people too are, you know, we're in this time of comfort mm-hmm. and it's really easy to be comfortable and people are starting to realize, well, yeah. I want some sort of dis- discomfort. Life on its own sometimes doesn't provide us the discomfort we need to grow. So we actually have to go do these things that we sign up for. Like, an ultra marathon or a race or a fitness challenge and it forces us to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It creates discomfort in a life that can be very comfortable. And I think people are starting to realize the growth that comes from that. Yeah, for sure. No, I think you're right. Yeah. Cause there's just not a whole lot of scenarios anymore where like, you know, your, your farm crops got an invasion. You got to spend 15 hours a day for the next two weeks taking care of that problem. It's like not, now it's like, okay, if I want to challenge myself physically like that, I need to go out and, do a 200 mile race or get out in an ultra marathon of some shape or form. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's good and bad. It's, it's good in a way that like it's forcing people to become uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's bad in a sense that we have to go sign up for races to find discomfort. Now (laughs) not have enough challenges is embedded into life. (laughs) Yeah. my, My dad's side of the family were dairy farmers in central Pennsylvania. Okay. So every time I ever talked to my grandpa, he's like, what's the weather like? How are the farms doing around you? Yeah. Grandpa, you're not a farmer anymore. (laughs) You don't have to worry about this stuff. But it's like, that was his lifeline. Uh If the rain didn't come, the crops didn't grow or like the cows weren't doing well. I mean, that's like a a death sentence Mm -hmm. and uh, it's constant stress. Yeah. To him, it's like 
how did that long run go this weekend? How did uh, that workout go? Or what's the weather going to be like on race day? That's his yeah. men- mentality, but with the, with the dairy farm, I guess. 100%. Interesting. Nick, this has been awesome. Um, I want to let you share uh, where people can find you and social media website and that sort of stuff. Uh, but uh, it's been great to have you on the show. No, thanks Zach. Yeah. It's uh, Nick bear on YouTube. You're, you're destined to find a picture thumbnail of me running shirtless somewhere. <laughs> uh, and then Instagram, it's Nick bear fitness. And uh, our company is bear performance nutrition, BPN Awesome. Well, it's been awesome to see you out there doing, doing your thing and growing over the last few years. Uh, this has been great. Thanks for coming on. Thanks man. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program so you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance-related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zachbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.